seen as a kind of form of ethnic cleansing in terms of the poor being banished from any town where it costs too much to rent. Nobody should be in poverty and um, if people are in work they certainly shouldn't be in poverty and working. The, the best thing that can be done to alleviate poverty in society, to benefit those at the bottom end, is, is to ensure that society as a whole gets wealthy. There are some good reasons why we have high levels of inequality, uh, which are the hallmarks of a healthy society. We're not going to see uh, any particular progress on, on redistribution or reductions in inequality or reductions in poverty. Echoes in rows. Hi and welcome to 2020 Visions with Biz and Reese, a series that takes the long view looking at politics, society and culture in the UK over the next decade. This week we're looking at poverty, inequality and welfare in 2020. Our guest contributors include author of The Spirit Level, Professor Richard Wilkinson, Labour MP for Stretford and Urmston, Kate Green, author of Poverty, Professor Ruth Lister, Professor Danny Dawling of the University of Sheffield, Dr Madsen Piri, Director of the Adam Smith Institute, the New Policy Institute's Tom McInnes and Matthew Sinclair of the Taxpayers' Alliance. While quality of life may have improved massively over the last century, inequality is at historically high levels, whichever way you measure it. The last 10 years saw inequality increase at a much slower rate, which is a good thing, um, but we're still in fairly bad shape. 22% of all adults across the UK live below the poverty line and 30% of children do as well. Um, that's measured as 60% of the median income at the moment, if you're interested. And as for equality itself, the current Gini coefficient is approaching all-time high levels. It's at 0.034 for those of you who get the numbers, where zero is an entirely equal country and one is an entirely unequal country. So we're about on par with Estonia. While some of the widest income gaps between social groups in the UK have actually decreased over the last 30 years, which is lovely, systemic differences still remain. Women's median hourly earnings are 21% on average less than men's and a Pakistani man has a pay rate somewhere between 13 to 21% lower on average than a white British man's. The coalition has announced a big shake-up of the welfare system and a huge rethinking of poverty. Rather than seeing poverty as a lack of income, which I guess prevailed in the new Labor era, poverty is now seen as a consequence of five giant evils. Family breakdown, indebtedness, drug addiction, a lack of education or education failure, whichever way you like to see it, and worklessness. At the same time, they're talking about the big society stepping up to fill in the gaps of a retreating state. Today, we look at how this trend might pan out over the next decade. Will the UK continue on its path towards a divided community or have we reached somewhat of a watershed where the allegedly exhausted redistributive policies of, of the previous Labor government will somehow be reinvigorated and reshaped by a progressive conservative alliance to tackle inequality and poverty once and for all? To kick things off, Professor Danny Dawling of the University of Sheffield explains the social and political background to inequality in the UK. I'm Danny Dawling. I'm a professor in human geography based at the University of Sheffield. Danny, what perpetuates the levels of inequality in the UK? I think that what perpetuates our 
very high levels of inequality in the UK is that we've learned to tolerate inequality. We've become used to the idea that some people should be paid so much more than others. Um, the UK is one of the most unequal rich countries in the world. Of the 25 richest large countries in the world, income inequalities in the UK are the fourth highest, um, higher even than the very divided countries like Israel. So the UK is a very unusual country. It's not a normal place to live. It's much more normal in most of the OECD to live in a country where you're more similar to your neighbours, where you you have a more similar lifestyle. You might go to the same school as people who live elsewhere in your town. You will be paid a similar amount for, for doing jobs which are you know pretty similar. Whereas in the UK, some groups in society are very, very highly rewarded for what they do. Other people receive very low wages in comparison, and people on benefits and in other difficult situations are treated very badly as compared to what happens in much of the rest of the affluent world. And my view is that we've just become used to this. And as we've ratcheted up the levels of inequality, the amount we pay high people and the amount we abuse people on, on low incomes, it's become normal to think of this as okay, as, as reasonable, as kind of fair. And it's quite hard to get out of that thinking once you begin to think of it as normal. You begin to blame yourself if you're towards the bottom of society and you think you don't deserve uh, things. You don't deserve to live, be able to live a normal life for your children to be able to have a holiday or um, even to be able to eat properly at the bottom of society. And conversely, at the top of society, people begin to think that they deserve to have hundreds of thousands of pounds or even millions of pounds because they're somehow worth it and they're special. And when something gets as ingrained as this into the psyche, it is very hard. It takes quite a shock to, to knock it out of people's everyday thinking. How can we encourage people not to see poverty as merely unfortunate, but as morally unjust? I think people need to realise how near to poverty they actually are. Um, there is far too high a sense of security amongst the population at large and especially amongst quite affluent people to thinking that the chances of them or their children or their children's children or their brothers and sisters of being in poverty is so small that they need not worry about it. Um, it in a country with inequalities as great as, as in Britain and with consequently poverty levels as high as in Britain it is much easier to fail uh, to end up at the bottom to end up in a dire situation than in a much more equal country which doesn't tolerate levels of poverty that we do. And so, um, if for instance you are a city banker and you're caught embezzling some funds or something and you might be sent to prison for a few years, when you come out you could easily find yourself living a life of, of pretty abject poverty, which would be much harder to live in a more equal country. And you might actually have, have felt less need to embezzle those funds in the first place because you didn't need to be quite so greedy in a place where people got on with each other. So I think people need to realise the risks to all of them, and particularly their relatives and friends and offspring. You are not secure in an unequal country. It is not a particularly safe place to be. For everybody that makes it up to the top, somebody has to go down to the bottom. And we always talk about the rags to riches story, but we don't talk about the riches to rags, and there are obviously just as many of those. I think the poorest are increasingly left out of policy making as a country becomes more divided and elitist, as the people running government are, are in higher and higher proportion, drawn from the richest 1% of the population. Uh, and, and that's all MPs. 
Um, it's amazing if you look at MPs and their backgrounds, their social backgrounds, you really are talking about a group largely drawn from the best of one or two percent of the population. And then if you were to look at the actual government, that is the cabinet and the other junior ministers, I think there are only about seven of them who are not millionaires. Uh, so this is a very, very unrepresentative group of people who've ended up gaining power in some way. In some ways, it's not their fault that they are, don't understand what most people's lives are like because they've never really lived anything that resembles a normal life and they don't mix with people who live normal lives, let alone a poor. But we have to question how we got into a state when we weren't in this before in the 1950s, 60s and 70s of electing people who are so unlike most of us to represent us. It hasn't happened elsewhere in Europe. It has happened in the United States of America where the vast majority of senators are millionaires or multimillionaires. But the population as a whole can react against it and decide not to vote for people who are so much unlike them to represent them. Following on from that, how can people on low incomes make sure that their voice is heard? Well, they can say repeatedly that they won't vote for people who are, who are quite as rich and as, as un, unlike them as this. They can demonstrate. It's hard and it's expensive to get onto buses and so on and to arrange things, but it is possible. And if you look at you know, other parts of Europe at the moment, you'll see people are far more willing to demonstrate uh, than we are in Britain. We've, we've kind of had a lot of the fire kicked out of it. But there are many, many ways of doing it, and the demonstration does get the people. They try to pretend it doesn't. I, I was listening recently to a program about Margaret Thatcher, which said that she almost cracked under the strain of uh, being called the milk snatcher as a young education minister in the 1970s. Uh, she found it very distressing to be attacked. And I, I thought, well, I wish people had just attacked her a little bit more and then we might have been saved all that trouble in 1979 and the 1980s. So demonstrations do have an effect. The effect is aggregate. Um, so it's the effects of thousands and tens and hundreds of thousands of small actions. The problem comes if you don't do anything at all you do anything, it helps add up to that aggregate effect. I think what the government are doing is playing a game of suggesting they'll do things that are so inhuman and unfair that when they do something that's pretty bad, it'll seem as generous in comparison to some of the horror stories. You're looking at a kind of form of ethnic cleansing in terms of the poor being banished from any town where it costs too much to rent. Uh, that is pushing people away from much of London, much of the southeast, into a few poor ghettos in the south and up into northern towns where the housing benefit rates will actually pay for some people to live. For major homeless charities are saying you're looking at hundreds of thousands of people made homeless. Uh, you're looking at increased rates of begging. If you were to reduce job seekers allowance, which is currently just £9 a day, which is not enough to buy yourself food and soap and to get a bus fare and you know, just think about living on £9 a day. If you cut that even a little bit you're basically telling people that they need to steal if they want to be able to get by. I mean, you're looking at you're looking at a fairly disastrous situation to make what are relatively tiny savings in money compared to the money you could make simply by getting rich people to pay the taxes they're supposed to be paying. I think this government are much more dangerous than we think they are. I think we've underestimated them and the ideology that permeates through them. And I think you've got to look at the timing for this. I didn't come to this view until very recently to actually see what the government had done in office. I, I thought they were kind of quite benign 
you know, almost to the right of the Labour Party kind of people beforehand. Um, but the things that they are doing and suggesting do suggest a, an ideology there, which is pretty terrible, which, which is an ideology of a kind of survival of the fittest, which says that we should look after the very, very poor. We don't want to see people dying in the gutter. But everybody else should be made to fight their way through life so that a few rise to the top. And I think the way we've ended up with such a terrible ideology being so powerful is if you look at the ages and the geography of the people in charge of the country, most of them are my age or, or pretty younger, and they were growing up in the wrong parts of the country to see any effect of the 1980s recession. I mean, they were either in very, very prestigious schools or they were in colleges in Oxford at a time when Oxford wasn't badly affected by unemployment, or they were in the middle of London um, in affluent parts of that. So they have never seen, they've never seen the repercussions of the kind of things that they're suggesting should be done. They've also grown up on a kind of diet of far right-wing ideology about how the state should be cut back and back and back and anything that's done by government is bad and council housing is bad, the benefits are bad and so on. And they're enacting it with almost no opposition at the moment because the Labour Party is, is in the middle of a leadership contest. And it's a, it's a very scary situation. H having just described this, I think short term you are not looking at hope. Short term you are looking at the chances that your children may well live shorter lives than you, um, that the chance of getting a, a job, a decent job that lasts for a length of time is looking much lower, unemployment uh, is set to rise, housing costs are set uh, to rise, uh, debt levels are set to rise and, and so on. However, when we were last in the situation as bad as this, which was in the early, early 1930s, um, starvation rates were higher, we were absolutely poorer, and we got out of it. And we got out of it largely not because of the Second World War, but because a set of politicians, even in the Liberal and Conservative parties at the time, began to realise that their ideology was wrong and the consequences were awful. So I've documented, if you look at income inequality, how half the reduction in income inequality from 1918 to 1973 occurred before 1939. Uh, we were already taxing... Uh, the super rich, we were taking their houses off them and so on in the 1930s through death duties because we couldn't make the life of the poor any worse. So w there was a precedent uh, for things getting better. It's happened before in this country. It's happened currently in most of the rest of the rich world manages not to make as much a mess as it. And of course it's, it's also there in, in the kind of lives that people would like t to lead. It's just we're being stopped by a tiny group of people who are very, very ignorant and have got it very wrong and it'll take them some years to learn it and a huge amount of suffering from most of the rest of the population, I, I fear, while they're learning the mistakes of, of their thinking. And I guess perhaps proving that maybe not all politicians are bad, uh, we also spoke to Kate Green, who's the former chief executive of the Child Poverty Action Group um, and the Labour MP for Stretford and Urmston. If the current government's welfare policies and proposed spending cuts are successfully implemented, what do you think the country might look like in 2020? What will the effect be? I think we'll have um, far less in the way of a state infrastructure in terms of public services. Um, and by that I mean things like you know healthcare, education, social care. Um, I think that will be much, much more patchwork and inconsistent across the country. 
Um, and I think people will be buying their way into it more than um, simply taking it up as of right. So I think we'll, we'll see a sort of breakdown in universal service provision. Um, in terms of financial support, um, I think we will over time um, see um, that people who are reliant on social security benefits for a large part of their income uh, become relatively poorer the value of those benefits is really uh, reduced and um, I think there will also be quite a large number of people in relatively low paid and unstable work but continuing to be supported by in-work benefits. Kate, um, what would you say needs to be the political priorities to ensure that inequality reduces and that we can actually end child poverty? Well in the short term it's got to be about um, income redistribution and in the longer term, in terms of um, financial resources, it's got to be about wealth redistribution too, which is why I think it's quite regrettable that the government's um, cancelled the Child Trust Fund, not because of the amount of money uh, that was involved, which was quite small, um, although not that small if you're very poor, uh, but also because of the um, the fact that it was, a, it was an instrument for beginning to address wealth inequality, and that's been removed. So in terms of um, reducing inequality through income and financial redistribution, I think um, you know we need to see a much much more ambitious program than we have have had really um, for a very long time. Labour did quite a lot, and um, particularly uh, in the period between about 2000 and 2004 or 5. But there there's clearly a long long way to go with redistribution if we're serious about reducing income inequality. In terms of improving life chances and closing the inequality gap, we have to look at the sort of um, the delivery of services, and, and you began to see some improvements under Labour in terms of the way that, for example, education, um, the standard of education was raised, and particularly for, for um, children from poorer backgrounds, you know, we, we significantly raised the performance at five GCSE, A to C, for example. Um, but we didn't manage to um, significantly improve the position of the very poorest children with the very, very lowest standards. Uh, and we also, I think, didn't get as far as was needed in some of the big structural spending, for example, um, around housing and neighbourhoods. Again, a start was made, but geography remains um, you know, a real indicator of inequality and you've still got locations with intense deprivation and we need some, you know, a really serious economic strategy that begins to address that. Um, given that sort of redistribution has become almost a, a dirty word politically, do you think that it's possible to return to a focus on that in the ways that are necessary, not only through income, but also in sort of focusing on equality and reforms in the school system? I think that's a, a really difficult question to answer, actually, because, um, I mean, we, we saw quite a lot of income redistribution between 2000 and 2004 or 5, but redistribution by stealth. Um, and almost it's like we didn't get the credit for it that might have you know, helped to cement public attitudes in its favour if we'd been a bit noisier about it at the time. Um, I also think there, there is quite a divide, um, and I say this now as a, a member of parliament for a North West constituency, quite a divide in attitude between the South East and probably most of the rest of the country, where um, shared access to services, I think, is... Is something that's much more accepted outside of the southeast. People much less try to buy their way out of public provision outside of the southeast. Um, and so I don't think it's unfeasible to talk about raising public service provision and using it as a, a means to narrow the inequality gap 
um, when you look across the country as a whole. I think the big challenge, in part, is the cost of it. You know, we need to be prepared to justify state spending. And at the moment, of course, the government's making a very, very strong case for the absolute opposite. Um, and we need to um, get away from a rhetoric that's about denying the very poorest access in order to protect the interests of the the working poor or the not terribly well off. We need to be much, much bolder about raising the, the standard of living for people across you know, across the lower end of the income spectrum and, and, and making the case for um, how that can be done in a way that actually benefits. Do you have any hopes that the big society will be able to pick up where the state retreats? Um, not really, if I'm honest. Uh, I think it's, it's simply not going to be a replacement for proper state provision. And I, I think it's really wrong to imply that there's something the matter with the state providing a fundamental infrastructure of social support. I mean, the importance of that for social solidarity, uh, for ensuring that we direct investment where it's needed and where it can make most of a difference, uh, for fulfilling a range of functions as a safety net, as a springboard, um, as, as a means of, of um, increasing social justice. I just don't think that can be achieved by a big society, a voluntarist approach. That's not to say that we won't see some very good pieces of work done by voluntary agencies, but it's not a replacement, in my view, for um, a proper system of social support. Why do you think that there's a political consensus on work being the only route out of poverty? I don't think there is a political consensus that work is the only route out of poverty. The consensus is it's the best route out of poverty. And in my view, it should be a very good route out of poverty for people who are able to work. Um, we want that work to pay. We want that, pay, that employment to, to um, come with you know, a financial um, recognition of people's contribution. Um, you know, there, there's a sort of psychological connection between working and rewards, and which you know I think people people value. Um, and I don't think we should keep rubbishing work. You know, the dignity of work is immensely important to a lot of people. They want to work. Um, if you're my age, you know, you started your working life at the beginning of the 1980s. Work's incredibly precious because we remember it being very very short. Um, if you were my grandparents, you would be absolutely passionate about the right to work because they were constantly in and out of work, long long periods when they just didn't know if they would have another job um, you know, when they went back on Monday after the weekend. Um, so work isn't the only route out of poverty, but work is important of itself and should be a route out of poverty for people who are able to work um, and it should be good, well-paid work with decent conditions um, and so on. Having said all that, there are other forms of contribution that people um, will um, at various times in their life um, obviously be making, caring being the most obvious one. And there are also times when we, we actually have to take rather than give, when we need support rather than able than are able to, to put that contribution in, you know, when we're very young, perhaps when we're very old, uh, if we're sick and so on. Um, and I think what we've got to say is um, there are, that nobody should be in poverty. And um, if people are in work, they certainly shouldn't be in poverty and working. Um, but that we should be protecting everyone from poverty. And I think we've kind of, in Ian Duncan Smith's reforms, uh, begun to see a rhetoric that pretty well, pretty well says, either you're working and you're not poor, or you're one of a very small group of very, very disadvantaged people and you're not poor, but there's no other sort of picture of contribution over the life course. 
The disposition to admire and almost to worship the rich and powerful, and to despise or at least to neglect persons of poor and mean condition, is the great and most universal cause of our corruption of moral sentiments. So said Adam Smith, author of The Wealth of Nations. Let's see what his successors at the Adam Smith Institute have to say about poverty in the UK. Dr Madsen Piri. Dr Madsen Piri, president of the free market Adam Smith Institute. Social democratic commentators, most notably Tony Jart recently, have argued that the contracting out of public services to private business has left the poorest in society worse off. Do you think that the private sector can act socially responsible for ensuring that the poorest aren't denied high-quality services such as education, healthcare, housing? Well, when services um, are contracted out to private suppliers, uh, the intention is actually to, to improve the lot of the very poorest. It, it is within the public service that the, the articulate middle classes tend, tend to get the best of it, for they know how to, how to use the system and how to apply pressure. Uh, for example, it, within state education, they get their children into all the best schools because they know how to do it. And, and when you do contract out services, um, it, it, it's, it's supposed to, to, in a sense, redress the fact that the poor lose out in, in these universally provided state services. So uh, certainly private firms can act responsibly. They can be required to do so. It can be part of the contract that they do so. There can be uh, uh, performance indicators uh, concern, concerning the, uh, the quality of treatment received by the poorer members of society. How can our elected representatives play a role in alleviating poverty? There are several things that our elected representatives can do. Uh, the, the best thing that can be done to alleviate poverty in society, to benefit th those at the bottom end, is, is to ensure that society as a whole gets wealthier. It, it is wealthier societies that, that have the funds to spare on redistribution, on, on welfare, on providing decent public services. So, number one, um, don't pursue any policies that, 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 that would kind of limit or restrict uh, society's ability to get wealthier, economic growth in other words. But uh, beyond that, of course, uh, it is also a question of making sure that people don't lose out on the opportunities uh, of um, making sure that poorer people have access to decent schools, to good school places. And the program which allows new schools to be started up in large numbers, which has just been introduced into uh, into, in, into the public discussion in Britain is, is one that's calculated to do that, to make sure that poorer people don't end up with the sink schools in the worst places. My name is Matthew Sinclair and I'm the Research Director at the Taxpayers Alliance. Matthew, in your opinion, why does the UK have high levels of inequality? I think we have uh, high levels of inequality partly because uh, we have a society with plenty of uh, innovative businesses and that means that plenty of people get rich and that's good news. I think we also have high levels of inequality because we have uh, a lot of people who aren't able to respond to the incentive that inequality creates to improve skills. So we've got an increasing divide between skilled and unskilled earnings. Uh, and I think that the problems there are a combination of uh, benefit dependency uh, and uh, problems in the educational system that, that needs to be reformed. So I think there are some there are some good reasons why we have higher levels of inequality, uh, which are the hallmarks of a healthy society, and there are also and a, and a dynamic economy. There are also some there are also some some negative factors which are driving inequality and people's people uh, being unable because of 
social failure, political failure, to take advantage of the opportunities that are out there. I mean, we've got a benefit system where working in the minimum wage of £5.80 an hour can, after benefits are withdrawn and taxes taken, be worth as little as 26p an hour. Now, it's, it's, it's therefore no surprise that a lot of people are getting traps and benefits. If they get traps on benefits, it means they get traps on uh, low incomes. And however you measure inequality, it's bad for it. It means that people aren't getting onto uh, that career ladder. Uh, so I think benefit dependency is part of the problem. I think the education system is another part of it. I think we created a system uh, that privileges uniformity over performance. And we haven't had sufficient accountability to parents to drive up standards, uh, and which is why I think that we, we have to hope in uh, both of these areas that the, the initial promise that we've seen from the government of uh, reforming on both schools and benefits is translated into, uh, into reality. And they make the tough choices to make that happen uh, because I think it's both systems uh, act to trap people uh, on low incomes and therefore mean that people can't uh, take advantage of opportunities and can't respond to the incentives that inequality creates. Because inequality, it can be, a lot, can be a result of lots of things, but uh, one thing I think that's driving inequality more than anything in recent years is that incentive, uh, because it's, it's a bigger difference between skilled and unskilled labor, and it's whether people can respond to that incentive and uh, take the steps that will allow them to earn more particularly building up new skills, getting into the workforce, or if they're trapped in benefit dependency or don't have the educational uh, background they need. Matthew, what can the poorest in society do to improve their lives? Uh, there, I mean, there are plenty of things the poorest can do to improve, improve their lives, just getting new skills and getting out and working and developing their skills in the workplace. I think the problem is that the reward they should get in the short term is massively undermined by government policies. So you have that £5.80 an hour becoming worth much less than it should be. So businesses are paying out £5.80 an hour, and that should be giving us a pretty, a pretty healthy incentive for people to work. Instead, that's becoming as little as 26p an hour because they, they get less benefits, they, get, they have to pay more in tax. Uh, I don't think it's any surprise that it just doesn't seem worth it to many people. So we need to make it more worthwhile for people to get into work in the short run because in the long run, work is the only way out of, uh, out, out of life, a life on, on low incomes. Uh, there's no way that can be done, that can be done for people on a, on a grand scale uh, from taxpayers. It has to be through work. Uh, I think what needs to happen is that we need to take uh, some tough decisions over, over where we set the poverty line. That will allow us to get a, better, a, a more functional welfare system. At the moment, we've got a situation where there are over 50 benefits, uh, nearly 8,700 pages of guidance for Department of Work and Pensions benefits alone. So the system's way too complicated. People fall through the net. The number of people in severe poverty, as though getting less than 40% of median income, has been rising over the last decade, not falling. And we can start to change that. If we move the poverty line from 60% to 50% of median income, we can create a system which saves money immediately, so there's no problem uh, in terms of the fiscal crisis, no reason to delay benefit reform. We can get down to a single benefit for all out-of-work and uh, income support payments. We can have it so no one loses more than 55p in each pound, additional pound they earn. So earning more is always worth it. So we can start to get those results 
if we set a more realistic poverty line. It's, it's that unrealistic poverty line has meant it's failed at every measure. It hasn't helped help the poorest. You know that the number in severe poverty is rising. It doesn't provide a clear, reliable safety net. Instead, it traps people in the sort of treacly complexity of the system, and they wind up stuck in benefit dependency. Are there any other countries around the world that can um, show the success of your proposed policy? I mean, there's, there's one, that, one that's particularly interesting because it highlights another area of welfare reforms in the United States where they've looked at drawing down people's benefits when they've been on them too long. And I think that's a good way of ensuring that the system is a safety net and doesn't... and, and it does improve the incentives not to be on it, on it for the long term. Uh, and I, I think they've, they've shown that they can get people off welfare and it's led to uh, higher employment rates. Uh, so I, I think that it does show that you, you can do welfare reform. I think what we're proposing is pretty ambitious on an international level, but we think we need to be ambitious. Uh, this is an area where there have been too many attempts at sticking plasters. And the problem is that little attempts to try and fix little problems with the system just increase the complexity, just increase the fundamental problem, which is a system that's been tinkered with too much but in, and had far too few, too, too few serious attempts at reforming it to address the real problems by making tough decisions over things like the poverty line in order to ensure we can have a single, simple benefit which can which doesn't mean that people are getting trapped in dependency. We also spoke to Ruth Lister at Loughborough University about child poverty and equality. Uh, to get a grip on, I guess, child poverty specifically, we probably need to start back in the 80s. In the 1980s, there was a massive increase in the numbers living in poverty, particularly the number of children living in poverty. Um, this then kind of plattered out a bit, and under New Labour, their policies began to bring the numbers down, but then they stalled in the sort of mid-2000s. So we still have extremely high numbers of children and adults living in poverty. And inequality is at just about its highest level. Although it, under New Labour it didn't increase massively, they failed to bring it down and it did go up slightly. So it's very, I mean, we, we are one of the most unequal societies in the world. And if the kind of public expenditure cuts go ahead that are, that are being talked about, then the effects on people on the lowest incomes are, are going to be uh, dreadful. People on low incomes rely more on the state for public services, for their well-being. So if you're cutting back, back the public sector, then it's going to affect them particularly badly, harshly. And there are very real threats, I think, to benefits. Uh, we've yet to see what exactly is going to happen on that front, but already some of the cuts that were announced in the budget are going to mean uh, real losses for people living on benefit. And the new method of uprating benefits is going to mean they will go up by less than they did under the previous method. So although the government will still say they're keeping line with inflation, they're using a different measure of inflation, which will save money for them, but mean that the purchasing power of those benefits, in effect, will be reduced for, for people who, who are reliant on them. If we look at the United States, which pioneered a lot of the more punitive welfare-to-work type measures, cut back dramatically. Uh, so it really has, you could hardly call it a welfare state, really, but very much a kind of residual basic safety net. And my fear is that that is, I mean, 
have already been, you know, in recent decades, we've been moving away from a more universal welfare state in which we all share our solidarity with each other to one which is kind of a safety net for the people at the bottom. And my fear is that we will go further down that road. Whereas I would argue we should be looking at, for instance, Scandinavian Nordic countries who are much more effective than we are in reducing poverty, uh, including child poverty, by paying more universal benefits and by providing a strong infrastructure of services. But of course, in order to achieve that, the public has to be willing to pay higher taxes. Do you see any signs of hope around the UK keeping the previous government's pledge to eradicate child poverty by 2020? Well, that was a very important pledge, and what it did was make, in a sense, by making that pledge, the government made itself accountable to organisations campaigning around child poverty. It meant that every year, when the poverty figures come out, there is a, a benchmark against which to measure them, and I think that's been extremely helpful from a campaigning point of view. And my understanding is that the present, I mean, the present government, the Conservatives signed up to that pledge and that means it's going to be harder for them to pursue measures which are going to make life worse for people in poverty. It doesn't mean it won't happen but in a sense they've, they're going to be held accountable by the same, the same measure. It's certainly, when I compare it with what it was like in the 1980s when we had a Conservative government who didn't even accept that poverty existed then at least from that point of view, we do now have a government that accepts that poverty exists, that child poverty should be a priority. It's just I think it has a different diagnosis of what the problem is than, than many of the organisations and campaigning around child poverty ha- have. I think there's always things that a wider public can do, that community organisations, that um, voluntary organisations can all help in terms of improving the quality of life of people living in poverty, supporting people, for instance, and getting training and so forth. But the idea that civil society, as it's sometimes called, can itself take the measures necessary to eradicate poverty, which is in a sense what is implied by all this talk about the big society, is, is simply nonsense. Ultimately, the state has to take action either directly or through regulating the market, the labour market. New Labour did not use the word redistribution. Um, they were reluctant to use it, although, and so what happened was they kind of redistributed by stealth, um, quite a lot in fact, but because they weren't prepared to make the case to the general public and say, look, this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing it, you know, redistribution has a really... You know, valid social purpose in terms of creating a fairer society, it's not surprising that over that period, British Social Attitudes Survey found a declining public support for redistribution. And, and my theory is that you know, if even a Labour government isn't prepared to come out and argue for redistribution, then I think, and it was particularly among Labour supporters, that, that support, I think, has, has diminished then I think people think, well, it's, it can't be a very good idea then. If, you know, even a Labour government doesn't say it's a good idea. It will be what J.K. Galbraith talked about in terms of private affluence, or at least private affluence for some, and public squalor, 
as our public services are run down. And it certainly won't be private affluence for people at the bottom. So I fear you know, the high earners will um, continue to do very well. For good measure, we also asked Tom McInnes from the New Policy Institute, who produces the uh, Monitoring Poverty and Social Inclusion Report every year, about what changes to, to poverty and social exclusion have happened in the UK. Um, and I guess keeping in mind that, as, as Ruth outlined, some really great stuff happened in the golden years of, of equality in 1999 to 2005, where we see, saw poverty levels drop and all sorts of wonderful stuff happened. What do you think caused it, Tom? And, and can it continue over the next decade? So if you say that, well, there's kind of a period of progress from 1999 to 2004, which is quite noticeable over the, over the longer term, then you've got two things there. Firstly, you've got, you do have a certain amount of economic growth there, which allows you to redistribute that money and put it into, say, tax credits. But secondly, that's the inaction of a load of plans that New Labour hatched in opposition, that they kind of worked on all this stuff. And they said, well, we're going to do this. We're going to bring in the minimum wage. We're going to do this stuff on tax credits. We're going to have all these various types of New Deal. And whilst it, on the one hand, it seems like policy overload, they did have the time to kind of think about them and look at what was happening in America, look at what had happened in Scandinavia and kind of bring these ideas in. Now, you could then say that what they didn't do was in their first term in office do the same amount of thinking that could then be applied to the second term. The, in a sense, kind of policies run out and you get, you get, you get the real sense of a, of a government that was then dealing, like sort of putting out fires. And a lot of these fires weren't domestic, right? A lot of, a lot of attention got diverted. Um, and sort of when Britain sort of went on this kind of larger <laughs> international uh, imperialist campaign... Do you think then that the Conservative Party, having had so long in opposition to come up with its, you know, five pathways to poverty, do you think we are actually going to see any real movement um, based on that? Or, you know, will we have to wait until we get another Labor government having had five years in opposition or ten years in opposition before we see progress again? I I assume so. This is my assumption that I'm working on, that actually that that no, we're not going to see any particular progress on, on redistribution or reductions in inequality or reduction in poverty. I don't think we're going to see that. And I think we're going to see that as we're going to see everything blamed on the huge financial crisis and the, and the deficit and what have you that was inherited by this Conservative government and was left to them by Labour, as it always is. So not only are we probably not going to see any change in it, we're not going to really see any kind of sort of honest discussion around it either. How big do you think the changes will be, though? Like welfare reforms, they're talking about a huge shake-up of benefits. I mean, in their own words, there's huge changes to the welfare state, right? I mean, even in opposition, the the dynamic benefits reform was seen as the biggest change to uh, welfare in... I mean, it always is the biggest change mm. since, since records began, but this was seen as, you know, a, a particularly substantial shift. And I think... You know, compared to some of the changes made by Labour, then yeah, it was sort of pretty pretty substantial, and yeah, it, it changes the it changes the nature of it. What I don't know uh, is whether it completely destroys it or, or, or like sort of tears it down, builds something new, or just actually makes a very big change to earning. Are you concerned about these changes? My sort of bigger bigger concern right now would be about the, the gaps in how people in low incomes are are seen by the rest of the country. David Cameron was talking about means-testing council housing. So basically after five years or ten years, if you had a job, you would be what, evicted? I don't know. You would move on. You would, your, your, your tenancy would shift and you would move somewhere else. You'd move into the private rental sector. You would move into the private rental sector. Now, I don't actually think that's going to happen. 
um, because it's directly contradictory to a lot of conservative rhetoric about rewarding people who go into work. I mean, it's absurd, right? You get a job and you lose your house. <laughs> but betrays a certain thinking there that we're going to have certain things that are only really for the very, very poorest and that we're not going to have any sort of continuum of income. We're not going to offer pathways out. We're just going to sort of cut loose a certain group. And yeah, all right, you keep your council house. And yeah, you can keep having these benefits. But the, the standard of that housing, the value of those benefits are completely up for discussion every year. And what, we'll end up, what you'll end up with is poor services for poor people and poor benefits for poor people as that link between a kind of a broader supportive welfare system and something which is just about making sure that the very, very poorest have enough to kind of scrape by on. As that changes, that, that relationship alters. But uh, do you think these the divisive nature of these, these changes that are happening could be undone and, I guess, repaired by the big society? My, one of my sort of real areas of, of interest stroke concern about the big society is, and I, I quote uh, my colleague to the right him, uh, Rhys Farthing, is whose big society is it? It, it does contain within it some, some ideas that are fairly hard to argue with, except that its distributive effects might actually be completely not what you think. Um, so uh, that seems to me to be a great unknown, but sort of uh, just a priori, you would think that those who had the potential and the capacity to take advantage of the big society or, or make the most of the big society without sort of sounding quite so cynical would be those who are kind of slightly better off in any case and who knew how to work these structures. You are going to have to interact with the state and you are going to have to interact with kind of faceless organisations and stuff. Now, that's what middle class people do all the time. That's basically what our jobs are, is this kind of negotiation of different sort of organisations. And... If you've got the right education, and I don't mean kind of Eton and Westminster, I mean sort of a, you know, a decent or a university education. These are the kind of the sort of things you're taught to do. Um, and that you end up talking to other people who've had the same experience as you. And that's kind of how you negotiate your way through it. Why do more equal societies on the whole do better than more unequal ones? Last year's bestseller, The Spirit Level, sought to answer this question by comparing countries on a number of indicators, including levels of violence, mental health and social mobility. We spoke to its author, Professor Richard Wilkinson, on reducing income differences. Given the kind of currently high levels of inequality in the UK and the fact that levels of inequality are rising, albeit at a slower pace, um, where do you see the future of equality in the UK? Is it going to be a, a situation that gets worse, or do you think we're at a precipice where we're actually going to, to tackle it? I think there's, there's a, an enormous increase in uh, popular uh, interest and concern over inequality. I think it's risen up the agenda very fast over the last uh, few years, really since the financial crash. Uh, all the main parties are having to pay at least lip service to it, um, and even that is progress on <laughs> what they used to be. Um, I, I think really the political climate in relation to inequality has changed a lot. I mean, if we think back to um, Margaret Thatcher, the no such thing as society and uh, the way the policies that actually she pursued that increased inequality. Uh, or think of Blair's early years being extremely relaxed about uh, top salaries and so on. Um, I think all that has gone. Um, 
I think also that if we're going to uh, ever deal with uh, adequately with um, global warming and, uh, and reducing carbon emissions, um, it's really important that that is seen to be fair. People will only accept policies that are going to change our way of life if they're seen to be fair. I think the political scene is changing fast. I hope very much that uh, politicians, society, in general, um, I mean, I hope we manage to move in that direction. It will be a battle. And I think during the, the cuts, the response to the cuts, will depend a lot on whether they seem to be done fairly or not, um, or whether we have uh, very widespread protest and uh, civil unrest in the way that some European countries have had. I think all those things depend on fairness, and that actually means reducing income differences. So what do you think need to be the political priorities over the next 10 years if we're going to get serious about both, as you suggested, actually reducing inequalities as well as dealing with the uh, increasing environmental question? I think there's, it's a growing recognition that we are one society. And for a long time, people have uh, thought that, you know, class differences were wrong and things like that. But uh, I think people are coming to understand now that those social differences, those social distances, are reflections of material differences. Uh, I, I think very strongly that the, the material differences in incomes and wealth and so on give rise to all the social markers of status differentiation. And so if you want to get rid of class differences, you have to reduce income differences. If you want people to have equal opportunities, that's impossible while you have very large inequalities of outcome. You mentioned that Greek-style civil unrest was a potential consequence of uh, the cuts agenda. Can we get any indications from any other countries about how to tackle inequalities and increase well-being? We start off with the sort of unfairness that this was a problem created by uh, the wealthy, the bankers and so on, the wealthy in the private sector, and it's largely being paid for by the poor in the public sector. Uh, when I say the poor in the public sector, I mean people either losing their services or as unemployment rises, it's always the people at the bottom who are left without jobs. Other people just uh, move down a peg and take uh, less good jobs, but it's the people at the bottom who fall out entirely. Um, if the cuts are going to be accepted, then really uh, fairness is an extraordinarily important part of that. Are there any, I guess, um, particular paths of social policy you could see following that would increase fairness? I mean, the model that everyone sort of turns to is the Scandinavian model, but do you think that that's possible in uh, the British setting, or do you think we're going to have to carve our own path to fairness? I, I think that there's a need for quite a major reorientation in how we see well-being. And at the moment, I think there's a, still the assumption that uh, well-being is about um, material standards. But at the same time, we know that uh, increasingly people recognize that consumerism, it's a bit of a mugs game. I mean, it's driven by status competition and amplified by 
inequality and so on, it's a zero-sum game, you know. You can improve your, your well-being and happiness if you move up in our society. But if the whole society gets richer, it doesn't seem to improve health, well-being or happiness, at least in the rich world. Economic growth no longer seems to carry the benefits. And yet, it's clear that, you know, now that we've satisfied most of our material needs and there is this sort of diminishing returns to increased wealth, that uh, our social needs are, are unmet in many ways. I mean, I think the surveys would show that people feel that um, consumerism or materialism involves a sacrifice of more important values to do with friends and family and community. And I think that rather than regarding greater equality as involving, I don't know, sacrifice of the middle class or whatever, reducing carbon emissions, again, as involving sacrifices, I think we must start to see that actually we can move towards a better society with a higher quality of life for all of us by dealing with the social environment and that you can improve the social environment by reducing income differences. You know, we find that the more equal countries in the, the rich developed world or the more equal of the 50 American states do better in so many different ways. They have better health, they have um, less violence, less drug problems, uh, lower teenage birth rates, uh, better mental health smaller prison populations, all sorts of things like that. And these benefits are not just confined to the poor. The benefits of greater equality seem to extend to the vast majority of the population. Greater equality can improve the real quality of life uh, for all of us. And, you know, this is beginning to be recognized by some economists who, you know, recognize that GNP per capita uh, isn't the same as well-being, uh, and that we do need to build other things into what we regard as progress. The greatest threats to uh, attempts to reduce carbon emissions must be consumerism. And as I said, that's driven by um, status competition and uh, intensified, if you like, by inequality. It looks as if in more unequal societies, people spend more of their income, save less, they work longer hours because money becomes even more important. It says what you're worth in a way, whether you're valued or devalued. And we need to get away from that kind of society. We should be thinking of greater equality and sustainability as a way to a better life, getting out of this sort of dead end of, of consumerism and the diminishing returns of, of increased wealth for the rich societies. The biggest danger for the next 10 years, I fear, is forgetting. We'll probably continue to shield ourselves from the existence of poverty. Our media spends its time breeding resentment against welfare recipients, enticing us with vulgar tales of benefit scroungers and encouraging us to exclude. On the whole, our politicians see poverty as an irritation rather than the single fundamental issue that must be tackled by any just society. So whether the age of austerity will increase the country's already high levels of inequality or instill a new work ethic into those on low incomes, the key issue we must all address is whether we can extend our instinctive abhorrence of seeing an individual suffer to those we haven't met but know exist. Next week, we look at the world of work. This is Biz and Reese's 2020 Visions. See you next time.
watching you glow Letting her receive uh, Nobody I know